All right, church, this morning we are diving back into Hebrews in an incredibly encouraging passage this morning. So if you would stand with me, if you grab your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. And I, I appreciate and enjoy standing as, and, and reading the Word of God together. It, it's kind of a very Old Testament practice, but it was a way of reverence, of honor, saying we stand in the presence of, of a Word that has the power to change us and transform us, and we give heed and attention to it. And so as we read together, I'll read the odd-numbered verses starting at verse 9, and you read the even-numbered verses, and we'll work our way through verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6, Paul writes, But beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Good job. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word today. We pray that the living word would speak to our hearts the truths we need, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we dove into what is arguably one of the most complex and difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret and to swallow. It was a stern warning that Paul was giving his audience about the dangers and the judgment that can come when you drift away or slip away or fall off the path of faith fully and solely in Jesus for your salvation. And verse 9 is a bit of a bridge he says, I know I've spoken to you about hard things, but, well, there's good things to come. It reminds me of when I was in high school, I was the captain of, I know you couldn't tell by looking at me now, but I was the captain of the water polo team. Now, the first time I said water polo in Missouri, I got a look and said, what on earth is that? I thought polo was with like horses and, and mallets and stuff. Uh, it's kind of a, a combined sport in the water. You're in a pool, there's a ball, there's nets, there's goals. And 
And anyway, uh, one, my senior year of high school, we had made the, the semifinal conference game, and we get prepped for the game, and our coach comes and he gives us the talk, right? And the first thing he says is, this team can utterly destroy you. They have worked hard, they are good, they are strong, they're fast, they've had an amazing season. Thank, thankfully, he didn't end it with that note. He just, he looked at us, and, and then what does the coach say? But you guys are ready. You're strong, you're fast, you prepared, you deserve to be here just as much as they do, and you can win this game. And we went out there and got utterly destroyed. It was not pretty. It was not even close. Paul has said some hard things to his audience. He said, don't slip away because if you fall away from faith in Christ for your salvation, you've passed the point of no return, humanly speaking. You must stay attached and connected to Christ. Don't try to substitute him with something else. It's, this can destroy you. But, he says in verse 9, beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, the things that accompany salvation. Why? Because you already know, but because Jesus is strong. Because his sacrifice is sufficient. You can make it through if you cling to him. And so as he moves, he gives us four elements in this passage today as we'll take notes. Four things that God has done to ensure the security of our salvation and four ways that we must respond to those things he has done. Number one, if you're taking notes, verses 10 and 11 teach us this, that God will never forget, therefore we must not forsake. God will never forget, therefore we must not forsake. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust, you might want to underline that word there, to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. His first word of encouragement is that God will not forget all that you have done for him. I came across this clinical term, and I think it describes a condition that every human being possesses to one level or another. It's athazagoraphobia. It's a real thing, believe it or not. What phobia is this? It is, simply put, the fear of being forgotten. The fear of being forgotten. I still have this memory when I was a kid of turning around in the grocery store and my mom was gone. And this is how horrified I was. Where do I go? What do I do? Has she forgotten about me? I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians, honestly go through this struggle when it comes to their commitment and their service to God. For Paul's audience, who gave up so much to associate themselves with Jesus, their family, their community, they were now undergoing persecution, not only from the Jews, but also from the Romans. They were losing things because of their commitment to Christ. At some point, the question might have gone through their mind, is this all really worth it? Does God see? It seems like he's not necessarily around right now. Does he remember? Will he forget about us? 
Is following Jesus really worth it in the end? Have you ever asked yourself this question, these questions? Am I making an impact? Will all my sacrifices and my unseen acts of service and the unseen prayers and the unappreciated acts of kindness, will will any of that have an impact? Will anyone remember? Will it be valuable at all? And I think one of the greatest things that can discourage people, even potentially people to the point of apostasy, is wondering if it really matters in the end. Again, to an audience that was experiencing great loss, Paul knew they were asking themselves, well, will God remember? Does he see? Is he taking account? And Paul issues some strong statements in this passage that are designed to assure us, not not merely encourage our commitment to Christ, but to assure us of his commitment to us. In this entire passage, Paul tells us three definite things that God will never do. Number one, I'll move in reverse order. God will never lie. He cannot lie. Number two, God can never break a promise. And number three, right here at the beginning, God will never forget the things that we have done for him and his people. He remembers. And there are three reasons why God remembers us. Number one, we learn here that if God forgot about all that we did for him, he would be unjust. It would compromise his justice. Notice that term. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. I think this is an interesting term because Revelation 15 tells us that all the ways of God are just and true. Not a trick question, but could God ever do anything that was unjust? No, it would compromise the very nature of who he is. He is a just God. Everything he does is fair and equitable and righteous and good. And God makes it a point to remind us that if he forgot or didn't see or took for granted anything we ever did for him, it would make him an unjust God. So apparently, remembering and rewarding the service of his people is a matter of justice to God. And I think that really encourages me. It encourages me that regardless of what other people see or don't see, whatever they recognize or don't recognize, whatever they encourage me for or don't encourage me for, at the end of the day, isn't it enough for me to say, I did it to a God who will never forget? I did it for a God who, he writes it down, he keeps my tears, the Bible says, in his bottle. He's numbered every single hair on my head. His thoughts towards me are more than the sand on the seashore. He cannot forget every act that I do for his name. Who needs the approval of men when you have a God who remembers like that? I don't know about you, but I, I tend to forget. And my forgetfulness has hurt people before. You know, I'll, I'll remember something someone did to me that was bad and forget all the things they did to me that, that were good. I can, I can see people who have served and worked hard and forget to tell them that I appreciate them. I forget. I try not to, but I do. And yet, eight times in the Old Testament, God uses this phrase, I will not forget. Six of those times, he talks about his covenant. I will not forget my covenant, my promise that I made to you. But interestingly enough, twice he uses that term by saying, I will not forget, excuse me, I will 
remember. That's, that's, I think I told you the wrong phrase. I'm a little mixed up in my mind. In the Old Testament, I will remember, he says. I will remember. He's a God of memory. And twice he says, I will remember, check this out, I will remember your sins no more. And notice he doesn't say, I will forget your sins. But I will re- it's a positive action. I will remember your sins no more. In other words, God doesn't forget things like we forget our keys or we forget our wallet or we forgot our anniversary or our birth- birthday or whatever it might be. God, nothing slips God's mind. If God doesn't remember something, it's because he actively chooses to wipe certain things from his memory banks. Which means God looks in Christ under his righteousness and sacrifice. God looks at our failures and our sin and our mistakes and he says, I have chosen to remember your sins no more. But here's what I will remember. That time you took your neighbor a meal and you prayed for them when they were sick. That time when you spent, went on that missions trip and you actively engaged in the lives of people who were in need. That, that time when you went to church and served in the children's ministry and told little Johnny about Jesus healing a blind man. That time you prayed for your son when he was in bed sick and you believed Jesus to heal him. Those are the things that God chooses to remember He puts them in the hard drive of his memory bank and nothing can erase them. So it would compromise his justice. Number two, God can't forget he will remember because if he didn't remember, it would compromise his very nature. John tells us something about the nature of God. And I know you guys know it, so fill in the blank. God is, he is just, but what what is the nature? God is Love, that's right. And First John tells us, whoever loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love. And whoever does not love does not know God. And so love is the nature, the very essence of what God is. It's not just what he does. It's not that God is loving. God is the nature of love. He is the definition of love. And so I want you to notice the phrase, he is not, he's not unjust to forget your work and your labor of what? Love. Why is this important? I have come to understand that God is not interested in ministry that is motivated out of guilt, obligation, or a sense of duty. Service motivated by authentic love for others is the only kind of service that God wants us to partake in. For God so loved the world that he gave. The very nature of God is that he gave himself, he served us in love. And what the, the, what the driving factor here is, is what God remembers is that which is motivated, not out of duty, guilt, or obligation, but that which is motivated by authentic love for others. And if we're all honest, we struggle with this sometimes. I, I, for one, as a pastor, and I'll open up with you just a little bit, admit that there are times where I've done things just strictly out of the fact that I have to do them. Obedience. And obedience is good. It's right. Years back, I was struggling. Our church was growing uh, very quickly, and the 
uh, we were going to multiple services, and there were more people than I could keep up with. And um, I'm, I'm an introvert. <laughs> I mean, you all wear me out. <laughs> I love you. I mean, I love you. But there are times, and, and so I was feeling, man, I was so racked with so much guilt. I couldn't keep up with the names. I couldn't keep up with everyone's story and everyone's struggle and the morning and counseling appointments and the hospital visits. And, 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 I, was, and, and I was sitting there because I wanted to. I wanted so bad. And I, I remember asking the Lord, Lord, how can I love these people? How can I love people I don't know and I don't remember their name and I can't, I can't keep it straight in my mind and I'm trying, God, but how can I love them? And I remember the Lord just spoke to me and, and he said, well, why don't you love them by spending time and energy and effort to study my word and deliver something to them every single week that is straight from my throne room? And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because it has been a prayer of mine and every week I sit down to prepare a message. Lord, help this be a labor of love. Help me have the kind of heart that you have towards people, whether I know them or not. The love of God is greater than whether or not we know another person. The love of God can be expressed in, in very tangible ways. And it's, it's my prayer, Lord, help me love the people when I think about what I'm telling them because I don't want to do something out of anger. I don't want to do something out of haughtiness. I don't want to say something just to espouse knowledge. I want something done that you look at and says that reflects the kind of God I am. And I think, it's, it's, I think there's exponential maturity that happens in our life when ministry is no longer about me fulfilling my calling. And me experiencing the fullest potential that God has for my life. Have you noticed we live in a culture that even makes ministry very self-centered? Your best life now, your fullest potential, your victory, your ministry, your followers. When God says, that's not the model I provided for you. Why do you want a crown when I went to the cross? Why do you want a throne when I bent down in a slave's robe and served people and washed their feet? Love is the motivating factor that makes us look like God. When we get out of ourselves and say, I'm doing this because I love people. I love the people God loves. I want to reach the people God wants to reach. I want my heartbeat to reflect the heartbeat of God when I see that person in need. That's when, you're, that's when you'll grow. That's when you'll have humility. That is when you'll experience the joy of serving the Lord. But notice, thirdly, he can't forget our labor of, of love because it would compromise his character. It would compromise his character. Uh, true or false, God really cares about his people. H have we all not experienced that from, from our God? That personal, attentive care? We have. But here's the thing. When you and I care for God's people... God does not just look at you doing something for someone else. The Bible is really clear about this. When you serve God's people, God says you are doing it to, to me, to God. Whatever you do to God's people, you do to God. This is, uh, this is frightening and encouraging at the same time. 
I would not want to be in the seat of someone in this world who decides they're going to have the agenda of persecuting the church of Jesus Christ because the Bible says God will take personal vengeance on those who hurt his kids. That's a frightening thing. But here's the encouraging part. And and you might remember this principle from Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus was talking about the final judgment. It's a little long, but listen through. Jesus looks at those who have trusted in him And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That ought to give us a whole different lens and perspective on our service of our ministry to people. That when I look at that person that I'm serving in need, I see Jesus. I see an act of worship. I see an act of love for Christ and the person that he himself has identified with through his death and resurrection And this is a powerful truth. And so what is the response that we're called to? Verse 11, if God will remember our labor of love that we have shown towards his name and his saint, that is, that we have shown towards the saints, same thing, if we do something to the saints, we do it to the name of God. Verse 11, he says, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Here's the the application. Because God sees and hears and remembers and will reward every single thing that we do for him or have done for his church, then our response ought to be an even more diligent pursuit of service to God. It's a logical response. It is the one thing that will never be forgotten. I could sum it up like this. Don't stop running the race until you've crossed the finish line and received the prize. That's when you and I can stop. That's when we can rest. That's when we can tone it back a little bit after we have been rewarded for our service to the Lord here on this earth. And the application here is, I just think, is is saying, don't quit on Jesus. Don't give up what he's called you to do. Well, Josh, I got wounded by that person. They really hurt me in church. Get back up, forgive them, dust your feet off, and get serving again. Well, I was burned in ministry. I was burnt out. Well, get back up. Get back into the game. There are still broken people that need the love of Jesus. There are people who need the truth of Jesus. There are people who need the resources of Jesus through you. You were disappointed that life or ministry didn't turn out as you hoped, and you have been spending time thinking the Lord let you down. My friend, the Lord did not let you down. The Lord gave his life on a cross for your sins. He gave you peace with God. He saved your soul from hell, and he ensured that you will be with him forever. Trust me, he hasn't let you down. But, but life is so unfair, and it's so, I love you. Don't wallow in your pity 
and allow it to be used by Satan to immobilize you. The Lord is not done with you yet. Get up and find a way that through your adversity and through your struggle and through the uncertainty and through the failures and through the, mis- the, the, the directed paths that weren't hoped for or longed for, that through it, you can display the overcoming power of Jesus. And think about it. What is it that we love about the testimonies of people? Is it that they struggled? Or is it that through Jesus they overcame their struggle? Show even more diligence. The word diligence here means to earnestly strive to pursue something with haste. There's an urgency to it. There's a quickness to it. There's a prioritization towards it. It describes what our actions and attitudes should look like towards the things of God. Diligence. Right? A diehard Chiefs fan understands diligence. They program reminders for the schedule of the games. They have the ESPN app on the front of their phone. They have tickets purchased in advance for all the games they want to go to. They've already ordered the newest merch online. They've gone shopping for snacks for game day. They have their list of friends they're going to invite. They have the same passion for them to watch the game. They bought a big TV. They've invested in their space. They are diligent. They'll also have plenty of free time this evening to come to the night of prayer. (laughs) Here's the point. We all understand the word diligence. Why? Because there are things that matter to all of us. We understand what it's like to wake up in the morning to be thinking of what we have to do and to prioritize things around it and to build our schedule around the things that we want to passionately pursue and the things that we love in life. And this is a challenging exhortation. Even give more diligence to serving Christ and his church. Why? Because no one's, at one point, no one's going to remember who played the Super Bowl today. No one's going to remember the things. The Bible says that when, when we all stand before God, all that stuff like chaff will be burned away and remembered no more. The former things, the Bible says, will be remembered no more. But there are certain things that we can do now that will be remembered forever. And he says, give diligence. Extra heed. Quick pursuit to those things. Why? Because God won't forget those things. Those are the things he remembers. What are the things we are to be diligent about? I can't think of a more comprehensive list, for your notes here, of what the Christian should practically be diligent about than Romans chapter 12. In fact, I don't have it on the screen because I want you to physically turn there in your Bible because I want you to mark this passage in your mind. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. I encourage you to read the whole chapter on your own. But he gives us a picture of this diligence that I speak of. Romans chapter 12. Listen to what Paul says in verses 9 through 18. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. 
in honor, giving preference to one another. I love the ESV there. It says, uh, outdo one another in showing honor, like a competition. I'm going to honor you. No, you're not. I'm going to honor you more. Like He's saying, have a competition about how fervently you love, one, love each other. And then in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, same word there, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all. And if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's the kind of diligence. Those are the things that we should be diligently and fervently pursuing. So God will not forget Therefore, we must not forsake. Number two, verses 12 through 15 teach us this, that God has made a promise, so we must be, everyone say the word with me, patient. I know you guys love that word, patient. We all know the saying, be careful what you pray for. If you pray for patience, God might make you wait. I have, I have news for you. It doesn't matter if you want it or pray for it or not. God's going to give you patience because it's what you need. You can pray for patience. It might prepare you more for the inevitable fact that you're going to get led. (laughs) Um, James even tells us through trials and tribulations that patience might be developed in you and have its perfect work making you mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Patience is needed. Patience for what? For God's promise to be fulfilled. Verse 12 That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. The Bible gives us clear correlation between believing God's promise and waiting for it through patience and endurance. Paul introduces, notice, a negative action and a positive action. First, he says the negative action. Don't become sluggish, he says. It's the same word you'd use in chapter 5, verse 11, when he says dull of hearing or slow of the ears, sluggish of the ears. Here, it represents a lackadaisical, apathetic, lethargic, and indifferent approach or or pursuit of Christ. Don't become slow, to move towards Christ, he's saying. Don't become apathetic or indifferent or lethargic to the things of God. Don't just settle in to your comfortable pace with the Lord. Don't become sluggish. There are those who might say, well, and it's easy for all of us to forget, Jesus hasn't come back yet. There are a lot of things going on in life, a lot of things I've got to do. But I want you to consider this parable or should I say the story in Luke chapter 12? I'm not going to dissect it, but looking at it as an overarching principle. Luke chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus said, 
Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing its activity when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and to be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do accordingly to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Again, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going into the, the implications of that, but here's the overarching principle. As servants of Christ, it should be a top priority for us to be mindful of the will of our Father in heaven and to be full of faithful activity until he comes. We are not to slack off. We are not to become sluggish in the things of God. But now notice there's a positive action. Don't only not become sluggish, but he says, imitate the faith and the patience of those who have inherited the promises in times past. And he uses Abraham as an example of someone who was promised something seemingly impossible by God. Remember Genesis chapter 12? God says, I'm going to uh, look up at the stars, Abraham. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. Every nation of the earth will be blessed through you. And, And think about it. Here's an older man with a barren wife and no kids. What does the Bible say? Abraham believed God, and it was attributed to him as what? Righteousness. But not only did Abraham believe God in that moment, right? Abraham kept believing God. Five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, 25 years later, between the promise of a son and the fulfillment of the promise. Now, I think 25 years is a pretty good chunk of life, especially when you're at the end of it. But Abraham never let his natural doubts or fears or even his bad judgment and his mistakes and his failures ever keep him or dissuade him from fully believing that God would keep his promise. He endured the uncertainty. He endured the faithlessness of his wife. He endured the impossible situation. He endured, he endured, and he waited, even after Isaac was born. And God said, okay, great, there's your son. Take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. He took him up with faith. And until the very last moment where he held that knife above his son, He was on his way down believing God will keep his promise. If he has to raise him from the dead, God will keep his promise. If he has to provide an heir, God will keep his promise. I will trust God until the end. And of course, we all know the story. What happened on that mountain? The Bible says the mountain was called the place where God provided himself, a sacrifice God's promises from, to Abraham are actively seen even today. 
We are all children of Abraham by faith and inheritance, inheritors of the promise of God. The nation of Israel, God's chosen land, it's a miracle to see what God has done to fulfill that one promise to one man who patiently and faithfully endured to believe the promise of God. Look at verse 15. And so it says, after, everyone say the word after, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We don't like that word after because it implies a process. It implies a patience. It implies a sanctification and an endurance. And here's the thing I've, I've, I learned from this passage. He says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the, process, the promises. Notice that you can't ever separate faith and patience. They're intertwined. Faith and patience. Faith is the ability to believe God's promise. Patience is the ability to wait for God's promise. Here, here's an example. Does anyone in here... Um, want to join me in saying that they love a, a really, a real wood fire in the winter. Okay, a few of you guys. I, I love it. I grew up with a big old fireplace. That was, that was the fire I had in the fireplace the other day. And I just love it. When you're building a fire, you have kindling, uh, newspaper, small sticks. And kindling immediately creates a, a flame, a, a, a quick, it's quickly ignited. But let me ask you, can you maintain a fire all day or all evening with kindling? No. See, what, what, what kindling does is it, it lights the smaller logs, which light the larger logs, to the point where you have so much heat that you throw a big log on there, and that thing just burns and burns and burns, and it just keeps the embers hot. It keeps, you can throw wood on it, it will just continue to ignite for the long term. You see, some people have faith. They quickly jump on emotionally to something with God. They, they get excited about a ministry. They get excited about a, a word that they got from, from a message or something they read in the Bible. Oh, that's awesome. I'm all on board, God. But because they don't have the patience to wait with God and endure the process of sanctification and preparation that God has in mind, the fire of their faith burns out almost as quickly as it came up. But there are other people who have lots of patience. They have big old logs in their fireplace. And they wait on God, 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 and they wait on God. And, on God and it's like, have you done anything for God yet? Oh, no, I'm just waiting. Well, some people use waiting as an excuse to not ever want to step outside of their comfort zone, not ever want to say yes to something that might cost them something for the sake of Christ, not ever want to travel in realms that require faith. You see, you could put it like this, the way the Christian life is to operate is putting the tender of faith on the logs of patience so that you believe God for the long term Amen. and you follow him with fervency and passion. Patience 
and faith. Patience and faith is not maintaining the status quo. Patience and faith is not doing only the things that are small enough for my mind to wrap around. Patience and faith is not giving up at the first sign of discouragement or failure. Patience and faith is not staying inside the boat when Jesus called you to walk on the water. Patience and faith is not cowardly shrinking back in the face of persecution and sacrifice. Patience and faith is believing God's promise and living it out over time. Here's how James put it in James chapter 5. Listen to this verse. James says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. He says, be patient. He echoes the same words of Hebrews. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. When's the coming of the Lord? That seems so far away. It could be right now. It's at hand. Do you believe that? Jesus' return is at hand. He is coming back at an hour we know not. We see the times and the seasons and the days in which we live. Jesus is coming back. And he said, whether your patience has to endure a lifetime and you die, not even having received the fullness of the promise, or Jesus comes back today and takes us all away, like the farmer who casts out the seed and waits patiently as it grows, doesn't have any expectation of that popping up overnight or having a harvest next week. Establish your hearts. And then he says, and I'll, I won't stay here, but I gotta say it. He says, don't grumble against each other because the Lord is at hand. The judge is at the door. Again, I love you all. You guys, we, okay, we, Stop fighting with each other. Stop grumbling and complaining and gossiping about one another. We don't have time to be in nitpicky arguments that cause us to be ineffective in the work of the Lord. Number three, God made a covenant so we can have comfort God made a covenant so we can have comfort. Verse 16 picks up, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, which in it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or comfort, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. In antiquity, in ancient times, an oath between parties would be the equivalent of a, a contract. You make an agreement with someone to pay a certain thing, to buy some land, to accomplish a certain deal. You have terms in the contract. And basically, to sign the contract was to make an oath. Make an oath with that other person. And if you made an oath and a promise to a contract that you couldn't keep on your own, 
The only way that oath would be solidified is if you could swear by someone who has more resources than you, right? We might call it co-signing. If I didn't have enough money to buy the land, but my father had enough money to buy the land, I would say, I swear by my father that I'll purchase this land for you. So God, we're told here, made a promise to Abraham. Now, God cannot lie, so his promise should always be enough. Yes or no? Yeah. But sometimes we doubt his promise even though we know it's true. So what did God do to solidify his promise? He said, I'm going to swear an oath. But then God looks around and says, well, who's more powerful than me? Who has more resources than I do? Who keeps his word like me? Who manages the universe and governs every atom and every molecule like I do? And God couldn't find anyone. And so God said, I will swear by myself. I love this. I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but Genesis chapter 15, after God gives Abraham his promise, he says, Abraham, come here. Get these animals, get these birds, cut them in half. I know it's kind of a gruesome picture. And put them and create a path in between the animals, right? This was two people would walk between sacrifices to make that commitment. If we break this commitment with each other, there's, there's price to be paid. There's, it's costly. And they would walk through that back and forth to seal the covenant, the, the commitment they had to each other. And so God has them cut the animals and he creates a path in between them. And then right when God says, okay, we're going to make this covenant, God puts Abraham in this deep sleep, he just takes him out of the equation altogether. And what does God do? God walks with himself through the sacrifices. I cannot lie. I cannot be changed. You can, in other words, you can take comfort in my covenant because I made a deal with me. And I don't break, I can't break a deal with me. Now, now, put, now put that in your mind at the cross of Jesus. You guys see it? Jesus went to Calvary and hung upon the cross and shed his blood himself. The Bible says in Isaiah, he himself bore our shame. He himself took our sin. He himself, the, 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 the chastisement for our peace was upon him and him alone. At the cross, God made a new covenant with himself and he sealed it by his own blood. Why? So that every time we look and wonder and question, is God gonna keep his promise? Am I gonna make it to heaven? Is God gonna be faithful? Is God gonna be good? We can look at a hill called Calvary where God himself gave his life and poured his blood and made a way for us. In verse 18, he tells us this, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong comfort or consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The word immutable means to be unchanging or unable to be altered. What are the two immutable things he speaks about? The two immutable things are, number one, the promise he made, that's the word of God, and the covenant he made, that's his oath, the blood of Christ. Those two things you can't change. You can have a different opinion than God, but it will never change his truth. You cannot believe that God would, would ever forgive you, but that doesn't change the reality of he said, I'll forgive you, and that means yes. You cannot change God's mind. 
I find that tremendously humbling. I'm just thinking now of like all the, uh, all the people that have been able to change my mind about who they are. I thought you were this. I, I, now I know you're this. God already knows. You can't change his mind. That's too good to be true. Exactly. That's grace. He says, therefore, we would have strong consolation. The word is paraclesis. It's the same root that is described of the title of the Holy Spirit, that he's our comforter. It means to come alongside of someone and encourage them, to draw alongside of and encourage. I think everyone today is looking for consolation, is looking for some sense of comfort, is looking for some sense of encouragement for their fears and their insecurities and their uncertainties. But, the, but for the Christian, our comfort comes from knowing that it is available to us through the work that Jesus has done on the cross for us. And I love this picture. He says, we who have fled for refuge. Fled means, uh, I love the term, it means to, to run for your life. It's this picture of, in the Old Testament, there were six, what were called cities of refuge, okay? Old Testament justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone killed my brother, it was not only my right, but my obligation to go avenge my, my, my brother's death and, and take care of it myself. Now, that's not a biblical principle anymore. Don't get any ideas. But what if you were, what if it was involuntary manslaughter? What if it was an accident? There was a city. If you got into a pickle and someone was after you, but you weren't really guilty of, of killing someone, you could go to a, a city of refuge. And there, as long as you were in, within its borders, no one could avenge you, no one could touch you, no one could take your life. And so you would literally run for your life to a place where you could find refuge. And this is a picture of what he's saying Jesus is for us. We are all guilty sinners, whether we know it or not, whether we did it on purpose or not. And when we run into Jesus, we are safe from judgment. We are safe from the enemy. We are safe from ourselves. It is only in Christ, which, which was why there's such a desperation. We flee. We run for our lives to Christ. Why? Because he's our only hope. Finally, number four, and we end here on my favorite verse in this chapter. God made a way, so we must not waver. God made a way, so we must not waver. Verse 19 and 20 conclude, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think it's appropriate for a chapter that started off by saying these are the dangers of drifting away from Christ that he ends by saying, but there's an anchor that keeps you anchored to Christ. There's an anchor that will keep you from drifting. And what is that anchor? The hope of Jesus Christ having gone before us into the presence of God on our behalf. I grew up uh, fishing and going to the lake a lot. So we, we went to the Colorado River a lot as I was a kid, and then we grew up deep sea fishing. And here's what I've learned about anchors. Anchors are only effective, basically, if, if you can see your anchor, it's not doing its job. 
That anchor's got to be deep and rooted and grounded in something that's immovable. And where an anchor on a, on a ship goes down into the sea, the Bible says our anchor goes up into the heavens and keeps us tethered to Christ, to hope, to God. And here's the warning. Hey, what happens if you cut the tie line that keeps you on your anchor? What's the tie line? It's faith. Faith is a line that keeps you attached to your anchor. Here's the difference between an anchor and a buoy, right? You don't want to cut the line of faith to Christ and tie it onto a buoy that's floating around in the world. What's going to happen to you? Have you guys noticed what God is doing right now in our world? I believe that he is reminding the Christian of the 21st century not to become too deeply anchored in a world that is on quicksand and is easily moved towards dangerous waters. Think about it. Russia is on the verge of war. A bag of grapes costs $12 at the grocery store. Inflation is through the roof. Our politicians are utterly failing us. Our secular solutions can't deal with the homelessness and the addictions and the suicide and the mental health travesties that plague our, our, our country and our world. People are afraid of what's going to happen next. Natural disasters are on the rise. All the signs, all the things Jesus told us would happen are happening. Are you really going to place your anchor, the thing that roots your soul, in a world that is so fragile, that is so lost? And I believe that now is a time where Jesus is, for lack of better terms, uprooting any roots that his people have had in the world to show them where their anchor really needs to be. Because Christian, when things really do get worse, when things really do fall apart, whether that's in our lifetime or some other life, some, someone else's lifetime, when things really do tear apart at the seams, what is the world without hope going to do when what they were anchoring in is gone? Are they going to look at a church who had, who had just as shallow an anchor? How is the church going to shine as a light of example of courage and hope and truth and strength and foundation in a world that's falling apart if we ourselves are falling apart? If we can't handle, handle trouble in our bank accounts and the loss of our job and the uncertainties of sickness, if we can't handle that with our faith rooted in things that we can't see, eternity in heaven, how will we ever show the world who's drifting around lost at sea that there is a better hope? I believe he's doing this. And therefore, let us cling to our anchor where Jesus, we're told, I love this, this word, was our forerunner who entered in the presence behind the veil. In the old covenant, you couldn't simply uh, run into the temple or tab tabernacle whenever you want. It's not like, 
hey, let's go, uh, let's go hang out in the Holy of Holies and sit on the Ark of the Covenant for a little bit. <laughs> hey, you did that. You were dead mean. And so in between the, the Holy of Holies, that place where the Ark rested and the cherub that covered and the presence of God would manifest itself, there was a thick veil, a curtain. And that curtain represented the separation of holiness and unholiness and cleanness and uncleanness. And of course, we get this picture, this, this incredible picture that Jesus, when he died on the cross and he said it is finished, right? The Bible tells us this little side note that the veil in the temple, what? Was rent in two, it torn in two, it torn in half. And of course, this, this meant two things. Number one, that God was no longer going to be confined to a little space in a temple made by human hands, but that his very presence would live within the temple of human beings that receive him by faith. But secondly, it also gave us a spiritual reality that Jesus went into the heavenly temple, which the earthly temple we're going to be told later in Hebrews is a model of. He went into the heavenly holy of holies where God actually is, and he went behind the veil as a forerunner for us. There is no more separation now between God and, and man and the ability to access him by faith because Jesus went before us. This term forerunner means trailblazer. Um, I used to live in Northern California in the Sierras of the foot, uh, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, okay? Uh, Lake Tahoe, right? There was this, anyone ever heard of the Donner Party? Maybe? You know, during the whole Pony Express era, St. Joe to Sacramento. They had to go through these mountains in winters, 20 feet of snow, no trails, no roads, up and down, who knows where they're going. I mean, it was just devastating. And yet, how many times did I drive that in an hour on a flat, smooth road inside a nice car, enjoying the scenery? I kind of see it that way. Jesus was our forerunner. You and I could never traverse the path to God. It's not possible. You don't have the strength. You don't have the resources. You don't have the ability to get into God's presence on your own. You can't take that road. But Jesus was qualified. And so he paved a road right behind the veil, right into the presence of God. And he says, if you trust in me, if you believe in me, you can come right on that road anytime you want, to and from. You can live within his presence. I am the way. I am the door to heaven. And it's open. And that's what he wants us to end on. We're going to get to good old Mel next week. But let us remember these four things, and I'll let you guys go. Number one, Jesus will always remember us. Our labor, our love, for his people and for him. Therefore, we must not forsake him, but even be more diligent to serve him as we see the day of his return approaching. Number two, God has made a promise to lead us into eternal life, but the full inheritance of his promise require faith and patience, endurance and trust throughout an entire lifetime. Number three, God made us an oath a covenant 
that he sealed with his own blood. And because God made a deal with himself, we can receive full comfort and encouragement knowing that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And number four, Jesus paved the way behind the veil into the presence of God and has become the anchor for our souls. Therefore, let us not waver or cut the tie line of faith, but continue to trust him as the world around us shifts and shakes and falls by the wayside. We will stay deeply rooted in Christ. Amen? I'd like to close in, in lieu of a prayer with the, just the lyrics of one of my favorite modern hymns. So if you close your eyes and let these lyrics of this song just sink in. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Amen. As you guys go today, may you go in the joy of the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you need prayer, we're going to be, have a few people up here. We'd love to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus today, if your life is not anchored in his sacrifice, you can know him today. You can make a decision to trust in him for your salvation. We'd love to talk with you after service. But I uh, hope to see you this evening. Um, if not, I guess, you know, go Rams or whatever. <laughs> But we love you guys. Have a great weekend.